recording. <laughs> uh, I do this. I do the same thing. Um, I had uh, uh, I had Steve Lillywhite on the show. I recorded an episode with him last week. I don't know if you know who he is. He's a produce record producer. Um, he's worked with U2 and Dave Matthews Band, and he's won six Grammys. And he's just he's a legend in in the music industry. And uh, wow. Yeah. Um, and uh, <laughs> so I, I got him on Zoom and I mean, we know each other. So it was, you know, it was I, I kind of had an idea what to expect when the when the interview started. But, you know, I was like, hey, Steve, how you doing? And he was like, I just want to say right now that Phil Collins is the greatest fucking uh, drummer I've ever recorded. You know, and I was like, oh, wait, oh, my God. And I, you know, I had to scramble the press. <laughs> I had to scramble the press record and. He was like, have we started yet? And I'm like, yes, just go. I, I, I'm just going <laughs> to shut up for an hour and a half and you could just keep doing that. It was great. Yeah, um, that's awesome. You yeah. have some really great guests, I have to say. Oh, thank you. Um, um, yeah. I know you just started on this oops, on this endeavor anyway. Yeah, this is um, I just put episode nine out. So I've been wow. doing it for just over two months now. Um, um, and yeah, it's, it's been amazing. Yeah. It seems like you have a lot of friends in the industry who are musicians and artists alike. And yeah. I listened in on the L Shriner one. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, that I, one's an interesting, um, venting session. Yeah. We uh, <laughs> living on but, the road and things like that. I, I really like that one. Yeah. And, you know, I have to say that, um, it, it, but, you know, we both said we both agreed that no matter how insane and, and sometimes demoralizing being a real road band can be, we still wouldn't trade it for a thing. You know, we still it's still wonderful. Um, so, it was yeah, that that was a fun one. But but yeah, I mean, just being in being in the business, so to speak, and um, it, being a decent person and, and being friendly to people, um, you, you find that you do make lasting friendships and you know people who know people. And sometimes it's just as easy as making a quick call or a text or something and saying, hey, I know you know whoever, and I'm thinking I'd love to have them on the show. And they, 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 make a they send a text and, and, it, and it happens. So I, we always used to hear and we used to say sometimes when we would encounter bands who were like a real jerks, you know, sometimes you're out there on the road and you meet a band that they, they want you to strike your entire stage so they can open for you. And, and it's all, you know, and we used to say, you know, you meet the same people on the way up that you meet on the way down. So you, you might want to, you know, just be a little more professional and, and kind and, and it might pay off later. And I, that was kind of a philosophy I always lived by. Yeah, I've heard that saying several times before in many industries. Yeah. Do, do you mind? Um, can I just grab my drink? <laughs> it's my yeah, house for sure. Water. Okay, be right yeah. back. One minute. Yeah, no worries. Got to stay hydrated, right, Adele? You told That's me right. that yesterday. What's that? Adults said, got to keep hydrated. Yeah, exactly. Um, turns out if, if this all goes well, I'll, you know, I'll be talking for a living. So cheers. I got to keep, keep, cheers to keep that. hydrated. Yeah, cheers to that. 
Well, it's nice to meet you both. I'm Ted. I, I know Rhiannon. Yeah. And I haven't met you yet over there on the, in the little square on the right. <laughs> I'm Adele. You're, Adele. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. So yeah. um, Adele is an artist and you can see one of her beautiful paintings behind her. Adele, do you want to always tell them a little yeah. bit about you? And Sure. I'm an emerging uh, micro realist artist. And right now I'm doing a series of butterfly wings. Beautiful. So. Thank you. Micro, yeah. micro realists. Mm -hmm. Very it's, cool. It's a new tag. It's newing, mm -hmm. newing, new and upcoming like me. <laughs> uh -huh. I love it. That's beautiful. And then um, Adele has participated in some of the programming that I was running through at COVID to connect artists mm -hmm. and reduce isolation. And now and then we interviewed her on the podcast as well and now she is special co-host with me for a little bit yeah and we're also working on some wellness and art retreats together that's great yeah that's a yeah. little bit of, we've about, got a lot going on together it's been a wonderful it sounds like it yeah it's been fun and more lots more coming right yes lots okay so I wanted to just ask about the name of your podcast. Okay. Um, when we asked you if your life was a novel, what would the title be? You gave us the title of your podcast, A Little mm -hmm. Bit Famous. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, it's a self-referential joke, ultimately. Um, it's uh, It was after uh, my band got off the road, um, I initially thought, quite a bit about writing an autobiography or a memoir, if you will. And um, I uh, uh, that that title came into my head sort of immediately um, because that really was what we were, you know, um, and, and 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 my so much of my life was tied up in, in being in that band and being on the road um, that I think it, it, it just sort of felt right. And, um, you know, we were a band that was touring nationally and we were doing uh, at our at our sort of most hardcore touring, we were doing sometimes 300 shows a year. Wow. Uh, you know, we would do eight week tours from here to California and back and everywhere in between. And then we would come home for a little while and we'd go back out and do it again and again. And, you know, by the end, we not by the end, along the way, we we and from there on out, we developed a pretty big following across the country. We had a lot of very diehard fans who would come to shows and we did it all by word of mouth and uh, just continuous touring and just kept coming back and coming back to these towns. So, uh, you know, we, we became a little bit famous, honestly. And, you know, we got to that point where we were signing autographs and we were selling out venues and things like that. And it, uh, it was, it was, it was nice. It was, you know, it was nice really ultimately to feel like the work we had been doing was interesting to people and they wanted to to hear our music and see us play it wasn't really for any kind of ego stroking thing that's just not really who i am <clears throat> i i you know part of choosing to be a drummer is choosing to be the least known member of the band in many cases unless you're keith moon or something um and and uh and i'm fine with that um and 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 the you know the focus of of this memoir was probably going to be largely about about my experience in the band. So so that was the title that seemed to to make sense. And so when I decided I might do a podcast, 
Um, I really did think about it as kind of a self-referential joke um, because the people I'm having on the show for the most part are so well-known or, or influential in their, their respective passions that, you know, it, it uh, was sort of a self-deprecating joke. Um, and I haven't said that on the show yet. I'm glad you asked me about it because, you know, I've done this podcast nine times now and I, I haven't actually at the front of the show said, oh, by the way, this is why it's called a little bit famous. Um, and I, I should probably do that at some point. Well, I think um, I can speak as like a new podcaster. You have all these ideas, but as you go, things just evolve on their own, don't they? And yeah you know, what didn't seem to fit before might fit. So like now I, and by the way, the music in your intro, I love it. Is that you? No, that's, um, um yeah, again, this kind of goes back to those weird connections. Um, but I, it's a, it's a guy named Jay Durius. He's from the Philippines. Um, he's one of the most popular singer songwriters there. Um, and it, you know, I, I, I met him through a friend in the Philippines, um, who works in the music industry there and has a lot of connections and friends there. And she said, Oh, you should meet Jay and maybe you could have him on the show. And um, I was like, absolutely. And, and we did a zoom call just to sort of get to know each other. And it was great. And he's going to be on the show. We actually had one scheduled. I was going to record him last week and uh, we were set for like 10 AM East coast time, which be, which would be 10, uh, 10 PM in, in the Philippines. And about at, at about one 30, he texted me at 1.30 p.m. East Coast time. He texted me and said, hey, I'm 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 waiting. And I was like, what? Uh, so he's, you know, your typical creative, creative yeah. mind. Um, so we had to reschedule. But anyway, I, I my friend in the Philippines um, named uh, Michelle Logdameo, she she texted me and said, why don't you ask Jay to do some music for the show? And I was like, that's a great idea because I don't know what to do. And I definitely want music. And so I texted him and literally like an hour later, he sent me that music. It was amazing. Awesome. I mean, yeah, he's this incredibly talented guy, multi-instrumentalist, you know, kind of a musical genius. And I heard it and I was like, gold, let's that's that's it. That's the theme show music right there. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. Um, yeah, I think like, yeah, like I said, it just evolves on its own. Right. And like maybe now you'll include a little explanation maybe about why you named the podcast a little bit famous uh, going forward or um, but um, the thing too is like I'm finding it very fascinating how many people want to be involved and um, I like to feature like um, maybe newer people unknown people people who haven't done a lot of promotion for themselves and mm. I did hear a girl um, a musician on the rest drum she mm. was uh I, I knew her because i worked with her on a public art uh, project where we painted um upcycled doors and fashioned them together as a fence mm -hmm. and i didn't know that she was a musician uh, until i heard her playing just a little clip on her instagram and i reached out to her and i asked her for samples of her music and she turned around and gave me three or four mm -hmm. So I was like, yeah. this is pretty awesome. Yeah, I know. I, I, I had no idea what I was getting into. I'm sure you, uh, you, you, you two have the same kind of experience that you, you're going on a little bit of instinct, uh, a fair bit of passion about the idea. And, um, and then you get the thing up and running. And uh, yeah, I, I was, I was really surprised how, 
how many people really wanted to do it and wanted to be a part of it. And Aaron, Aaron Comas is a great example. He's my guest this week on, on my podcast. He's the drummer for the spin doctors. And I reached out to him. I don't know him personally, but we were sort of in the same musical circles, especially in the New York music scene in the early nineties. And he got back to me right, almost right away. And he was like, yep, I'm, I would love to do it. He was like unbelievably gracious, friendly. Uh, we had a great talk and, and uh, you know, he's not, sometimes you, you meet someone and you kind of connect and vibe on the podcast and then that's it. You know, they get on with their lives and you get on with your life. And, and uh, but, but he's been, we've been texting and, and um, you know, he promoted the show. He promoted my podcast and his, his appearance on the show, which is really nice because sometimes um, people who appear on the show uh, don't do that for whatever reason, they're busy, you know, um, they just sort of assume that you're doing that part of it. And, and that's all fine. And I don't have any expectations that they that they will do that, you know, but he really did. And, and it, it's been great, you know, and um, I, I'm, I, I it makes me feel like very confident that, um, you know, the sh what I'm doing is meaningful in some way. Yeah, I, I think so. If people are responding in that way. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I like the broad range of topics that you're covering, but especially that you're talking strictly to artists and musicians on their take on things and how they've gotten through it. It's really great way to go at it. Different than everyone else. I haven't heard anything the same, which is good. Oh, that's like the greatest compliment I could possibly get, you know, um, that it's different. And that was my goal all along. I didn't want to do an inter strict interview podcast. And I know that you two are both kind of into the idea of having an organic conversation and, and, and free flowing. And, and that's really awesome. And I, I mean, honestly, I love a good conversation and I can't imagine doing it any other way. You know, somebody says something, if you're intently listening, your mind goes bing and you you say, oh, OK, I have a question about that. That's really interesting. I want to know more. And um, for me, the, the thing was, I didn't want to I didn't really want it to be a, it's a it's a it's a music or it's a creative podcast, but I really didn't want it to be where I'm asking guests, you know, like, what's your favorite guitar pick or, <laughs> you know, things like that. I really wanted to have conversations that developed in such a way as it did with with Al, you mentioned um, the Al Schneer podcast that I did last week. Yeah, that was great how that yeah. evolved. Um, yeah, like I said, we, it was just a big venting session. I loved it. Yeah. And we spent, you know, I mean, they are Al is a member of a band called Mo and they've been a successful band for 30 years. And we didn't even really talk about Mo music at all. Um, and no, you that guys was talked great. about like the early days. Yeah. Crossing yeah. paths. Yeah, exactly. And and what it's really like to be in a touring band and um, yeah, how but, draining it can be. Oh, yeah, it's it can be physically grueling. Um, well, Rhiannon and I were talking about that before um, earlier today, how you're kind of shedding light on a world that we don't really know about because we're artists, not musicians. So for your listeners, you're doing the same thing you know, yeah. shedding light on what it's like to have that life. And maybe it's not as glamorous as we, we think it is. It still sounds pretty awesome though. It does. I I couldn't agree more. <laughs> it's the, it's the greatest thing in the world, you know? Um, 
because actually it is a life of of ups and downs that can be really extreme. Um, you know, you there's a there's a song um, by the Black Crows called Amora, or not Amorica. It's from the album Amorica. The song is called Wiser Time. And it's really, to me, kind of the ultimate road song. And if you get a chance, you should check it out. Wiser Time by the Black Crows. There's a line, there's a line in the chorus that says, and on a good day, and I know it ain't every day, we can part the sea. And, a bad, and on a bad day, and I know it ain't every day, glory beyond our reach. And <clears throat> that sort of describes a typical day-to-day -day life of, of being in a touring band. You have those nights where the place is, you know, the venue is just packed. And where it's pure magic. Yes. There's this electricity in the room. And I've shared about this on the podcast that it's it, that is the kind of night where we as members of a band on stage playing music, we absolutely give the audience every single bit of our energy and they give it back. And it just feels absolutely there's nothing like it in the world. And then you then you, you know, the next day you show up and um, one of two things could happen on a bad night. One is the crowd is there and the place is jam packed and you give all this energy and they just don't give it back. You know, they just absorb it and, and you just go, you know, um, or there's nobody there, you know, and, and that happened a lot too along the way and you just suck it up, you know, you just, but those days are really hard. Um, yeah, but you do it. those days. Yeah. And you put up with those days and you just keep going in pursuit of the magic nights, you know, in pursuit of those days where, where you just get that feeling that just it's, uh, there's nothing like it in the world. Like a chase. Yeah. Yeah. You could say it is a little bit like a drug, you know, it is, it is a little bit like this thing that you, this high, but, but it's, um, you know, I would say it's a pretty healthy high. It's just, it's just this there's because there is this thing that's almost indescribable where you connect with an audience in a way um where where you can feel their energy and you can see um because we were a band that did a lot of improvisation and we would stretch out and jam a lot and we're all on stage and and when you get to, when you get to playing with a band for a long time you develop a kind of esp uh with the band so you're not really even looking at each other anymore you just are so tight that someone can give the slightest cue in terms of a dynamics change uh, or, or, you know, we're in a segue and, and we're segueing between two songs and someone can give this slight little cue and we all know to transition into the feel or tempo or energy or dynamics of the next song. And the audience is just there for every second of it, you know, and it just feels so great. I think um, that's definitely one of the like top things that I, admire or envious of is that ability to jam and just to mix it yeah. up and and feel the music I don't play an instrument I've always wanted to mm -hmm. um but that's just not my thing but I know Adele you play right you play some instruments yeah I I don't really play that much anymore but I I, I have a saxophone and a clarinet I just don't play them anymore oh, nice. but 
there is that I, I love concerts. I'm a total concert goer. And Mm -hmm. so it's funny to get that perspective of the energy because I know from standing at concerts, like that's why you go, you feel that energy from the band. It's not just coming from, you know, yeah, it comes from us to you guys, but it, I feel it, you know, you feel that from the band too, that vibe, that, that vibe. And then that, I think that attests or adds to the flow of, of the band too. Mm -hmm. There's also some sort of like life force in there too. um, They've done studies where they match heartbeats of audience with performers. Really? Yeah. I mean, that makes sense to me just anecdotally. I don't know about the science, but yeah. Done with like symphony, maybe the tests have been done with, and it's done on like, like cortisone and saliva and things like that. But yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, I mean, I was uh, very early on, I, I wanted to get into a band that jammed a lot and did a lot of improvisation. Um, you know, I was when I was in high school, I was listening to the Grateful Dead and uh, groups like that. And, and then, of course, um, Fish came along and and I'm, I'm not a, a diehard Fish fan. I, I, I like them and I saw them many times when I was, you know, in, in my early college years. But something about the idea of a band that didn't have to go up there and 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 play the same construction of a song over and over again every single night for 30 years you know that was not for me i i really wanted to be in a band where we could jam and and really improvise i mean i'm not just saying take an eight bar solo i'm talking about we could go up there and maybe not even say anything to each other in advance or backstage before the show oh we're gonna stretch out it just happens and every night is different. Every set list is different. And that kept me musically um, creative and unblocked for a really lo- for the entire duration of being it's like in the, the band. opposite of pop music. Yeah. And I believe me, I have nothing against pop music. I love pop music. You know, I'm I'm really am just a completely uncynical person about pop music. And I've talked about this with some of my guests. 80s the 80s pop music scene is just awesome i didn't i didn't love it so much when i was living through it you know i was i was this you know kids fish out of water in the during the reagan years and and then you know everything just felt wrong to me and at that point so who was your favorite like what was your favorite song to come out of the 80s do you have one or oh do you have like god a- i could go i could go, Can we go on and on maybe 83 Honestly, I mean, I love music, but I'm not like a, a music historian, so I couldn't say this song came out in 81 or 82. Yeah. Um, but I God, there's a million. I mean, Huey Lewis and the News were making incredible music. Um, Madonna at the time, uh, you know, the Talking Heads, I, you know, even the Red Hot Chili Peppers in the 80s. Um, let's see who else. Um, well, some, I mean, uh, some good rock bands in the 80s, too. Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting, too, because I'm not I wasn't I wasn't as big of a fan as of the 80s rock as I was 80s pop. Um, You know, not to say I didn't listen to or didn't like bands like the Scorpions and, you know, oh. Twisted Sister and, um, you know, Motley Crue and stuff like that. Um, but I mean, I certainly loved Van Halen, you know, the David Lee Roth, uh, iteration of Van Halen, 
but the pop music that was being written and, and produced and, and, and put on radio in the eighties, just had, you know, that was something I was really drawn to. I mentioned Phil Collins at the beginning of the, our conversation. Um, Phil Collins was doing great stuff in the eighties. Even some of the kind of bands that came and went um, were, were making great, you know, Kaja Gugu, you know, bands like that. Um, the, the, the band that sang um, always something there to remind me. And I, a lot I of one remember. hit wonders. Yeah, there were a lot, but darn it. They were good songs. You know what I mean? They, they really were. And, and of course, at the time, like I said, I was like, oh, this is a weird this is a weird era. Uh, and it really later on, I, I developed a deeper appreciation for for the music and the production. I mean, the production going into those those songs in the 80s, people are emulating now. You know, there are a lot of bands out there now that that are making records deliberately with a lot of the same, um, you know, say, for example, an analog synth uh, or some big reverbs and things to to emulate those sounds from the eighties, which, um, when I was talking to Aaron Comas the other day, we, we, uh, we, we had this similar conversation about the eighties, particularly one thing that I didn't like at the time, which was the sort of very gated sound of drums and lots of reverb and, um, things like that. But I, I think it sounds great now. <laughs> it's not something I would ever use, um, as a producer or, um, as a mix engineer, I, those are not mixed choices I would make, but I love to hear it now. Yeah, no, I agree. I've been hearing a lot of that influence lately too and noticing it. Mm -hmm. I'm um, an 80s baby, but yeah, I had um, four older sisters. Mm -hmm. So I did catch a lot and, and an older, two older brothers. So I did catch a lot of music yeah. from the 80s. Yeah, that's yeah. with me. I even have some vinyl and I'm, I've, I have like um, Belinda Carlisle. <laughs> salt yeah, and pepper and i'm into know, it that was 90s salt and pepper but i i have a lot of like old records just because of them yeah yeah, yeah i'm i'm with you um I, I i love it but you know what another thing too though is i am a historian but um and so when i i i, I felt it at the time viscerally uh but i understand it much more now intellectually that the 80s were like an existential decade because it was the cold war kind of at its most heated, at least for part of the eighties when Reagan took office and he had all this bluster uh, toward the Soviet union and he called it the evil empire. And there was this very, very significant um, acceleration of, of the building of, of nuclear missile, nuclear weapons. And we were, when we were kids, I, I remember my friend Dave and I, um, he was my best friend as a kid this was a sort of typical Saturday for for a kid in the 80s who was at all aware of what was going on. We would sit on we would just sit on the swing set and talk and we would sing another brick in the wall part two by Pink Floyd. And then we would get into these deep conversations about where would you like to be when when nuclear when World War three starts? You know, we were 10 years old or nine years old and we would say, do you would you rather be right where the bomb hits and just be immediately incinerated? Or would you rather be miles away and take your chances of surviving in a post-apocalyptic world? And, and uh, he and I both kind of agreed, like, 
I think it would probably be better to just be literally standing right where the bomb hits and it's just immediately over rather than live with radiation sickness and nuclear winter. Um, because culturally the eighties were also a time of these unbelievably scary cold war movies, movies like red Dawn. And there was a TV series, a mini series called, uh, uh, what was it called the day after tomorrow, the day, the day after, I think it was called, you know, about a nuclear war. And it seemed likely it didn't seem like a far away possibility. It seemed likely that we could have a nuclear war, a nuclear exchange in the eighties. So amidst all of the Madonna and wham, and, you know, all these bands that were making this kind of really happy go lucky pop music was this very serious, dark reality that we were living in that, that we were who knows how far away from a nuclear missile launch. And uh, so it was a weird time to grow up. Yeah, that's some pretty heavy stuff, right? Yeah. I mean, um, I was a sensitive kid. I don't know if, you know, my, Jimmy from down the street was having these thoughts, but I know I was. Yeah. Well, you're creative. Yeah. So comes with the territory, I think. Yeah, I agree. Um, you mentioned that you're a historian. And I wondered if maybe you could um, tell us a little bit about, I know that you have a PhD in American I history. Um, but, and you also taught as a professor for a few, for many years. Yeah. Um, but before that, were you into music and how did you end up um, going into American history? What prompted that? Well, I, I was into music first, um, you know, from a, the age of about eight, I started taking drum lessons and always dreamed of the day when, you know, I dreamed of a possible future where I would be a drummer uh, or I would be, I would be successful in uh, the creative world. I, I also wanted to be an actor and I wanted to be a novelist and I wrote short stories and um, was was really, really passionate about that kind of stuff. Um, but I as a kid, I, my history was always my favorite class. And growing up, you know, going into high school, history was really my favorite class. And I I had the opportunity to go on my senior trip. I went to um, the UK. I was in an advanced placement history class and we got to go to England, Ireland, Scotland and Wales. And I'd been to England before, but I'd never been to um, any of those other places. And it was just really magical to me. And obviously the UK has so much history. You know, we took a, when we went to Scotland, we took a train, an overnight cabin train from London to Edinburgh. And it was just magical and mystical and, and fascinated me. Um, but I, you know, at that point in my life by high school, <clears throat> I knew that, that like high school was, not going to be great. It was not, it was, you know, it was not a happy time for me. Uh, but I, I went to college for a lot of reasons. I've shared about it on the show, but for people who haven't heard me tell that story, I, I had a girlfriend in high school that I really loved and I didn't want her to break up with me because I was scared about that. And so I decided to go to college in my, um, in locally, I'll say, you know, um, so that I could stay together with my girlfriend. And then she dumped me like six months later. So 
you know, I was heartbroken, <laughs> but uh, God, teen angst. And um, but in, in college, I was an English major and a history minor. I was still play actively playing the drums. I was in garage bands and things like that. Um, very few people, if anyone really knew in my high school that I even played the drums because I was not that kind of guy or kid. I wasn't the walk around like with drumsticks hanging out of my jeans. Uh, I didn't wear that on my sleeve. Even in the 80s, you weren't doing that? I, I don't know. I mean, no, I wasn't. Even though I remember there was a movie called Some Kind of Wonderful, a John Hughes movie called Some Kind of Wonderful. And I loved all of the John Hughes movies of the 80s. And, you know, the movie was about this young girl who teenage who had who was a drummer and it was like all angsty. And I was like, that's so cool. And she has ripped jeans and she carries her drumsticks around. And that was not for me. <laughs> Uh, but I was, yeah, I was conflicted. I was, I was a, I was a sensitive kid. I was a creative kid. A lot of things about life and the world just didn't sit right with me. Um, at a young age before I really understood it on an intellectual level, I was, I was confused by not so much confused, but I, I certainly in my, I had a critical eye. I was a critical thinker and a deep thinker and, normal life just seemed dysfunctional to me. Uh, you know, the idea of people just going through years and years and years of education and having their creativity just kind of stomped out of them um, by being made to for follow rules and think a certain way and be sort of being conditioned to be uh, a cog in this giant, you know, industrial capitalist machine, you know, um, which, you know, may sound revolutionary or radical, but I think it's true. And um, a lot of people just end up on that path and they don't necessarily have a moment where they go, oh, man, this is this is not right. You know, why is it that I have to go to go to college and or maybe not even go to college, just go work in a factory and do that for 40 years and then maybe retire with a little bit of money to go to Florida, you know, that just didn't feel right to me, but I still, I didn't know what else to do. And I had been conditioned enough. And so I went to college, but all along I wanted to get out of there and, and join a band. And, and I was fortunate enough, uh, you know, largely because of my decision to stay local for my girlfriend to, to get introduced to a band and, and start, and I auditioned for them and they, they, you know, I was invited to join the band and, and maybe that's a whole other subject. I went off to be, in a touring band, but, um, I'll, 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 you know, synthesize it very, very quickly and say at, we toured nationally for over 10 years. And then I toured with another band that was sort of an offshoot of my band for a year, which was amazing. I played with some great world-class musicians and then, um, you know, that this sort of, a lot of people were getting, we were getting into our thirties people, you know, people in the van were, were married and, and having kids. And, 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 you know, we kind of had that talk like, well, maybe we should take a break. And in my mind, having been through three years of college, I completed my junior year before I dropped out to go, to go be in this band. I was always kind of thinking, Oh, maybe I'll go back. You know, I'm a curious guy. Um, and I thought maybe I'll go back and I, I decided to. So I went back to school, went back to the state university here and, and, um, got my uh, finished my bachelor's and got a master's degree. And I, I just loved being a student. I loved learning. I loved the, loved the professors I was um, taking classes with. 
And I was like, you know what? I'm going to go for it. I'm going to get a PhD. And I had no idea what I was getting into, but it seemed the, like the right thing to do at the time. <laughs> uh, yeah, I just really, tough. yeah, you've done it too. I'm, I'm considering doing my master's, but I already know that it's, <laughs> I don't mm. know. It's a big decision. Yeah. It's, I'll tell you this. It's a lonely road. Yeah. And it's uh, stressful sometimes depending on the subject. Yeah. So yeah, I, I, I went, I loved the, the, the history department. I love the faculty where I was uh, working on my master's and I was like, I'm going to go for it. And I uh, got into the graduate, the PhD program, <clears throat> went through all of that, um, you know, which is essentially like they just hurl books at you for two years. You know, they're just boom, 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 boom. You, you learn the historiography, which is which is the history of the history. You know, they're like, if you want to claim to know anything about anything, you need to know everything, every book that any historian has written about this subject. And so my, my professors would literally, I'd go in their office, we'd talk for a little while. And then I, I had a professor named Ann Withington. This is a good example. She, she, she was this sort of old, you know, kind of, um, I don't want to use the word fuddy-duddy, but she was brilliant. And she just had this, you know, kind of curly mop of hair. And she was very, you know, very kind of liberal and, and uh, free spirited. And she would just shuffle from behind her desk and she'd go to her shelf and grab like, 60 books <laughs> and just shove them at me and say, read these, you know? Um, and then I did, did the PhD exams, which was a few days of written and, and oral exams. And, and then I was in and I needed to write a dissertation. So I loved history. I loved, the, I loved the process, even though it was maddening, but I eventually did write a dissertation and um, took, defended it. And, and next thing you know, the, the, the uh, chair of my committee, looked over at me after the defense and said, congratulations, doctor. And I was like, whoa, this is, this is happening, you know? Uh, and then I, uh, yeah. And then I went off and taught college for a while. That's awesome. Congratulations yeah. on all of that hard work uh, and it paying off for you. Thank you. Yeah. And I loved it. I did. I, I mean, I still love history. Um, my house is just festooned with with historical monographs um, and a lot of fiction, too. I, I mean, I absolutely adore fiction um, and I have a lot of novels, but um, and, and, and I have to say it was actually a smooth transition because being a historian and particularly being a college professor, you're is, is a performance of sorts. I mean, you're standing there in front of a group of people, a group of students, um, and in an ideal world, you have their attention. Um, but it is very much like performing in a band because you have days where they, you definitely don't have their attention and you're trying to give them all this energy and they're not giving it back. They're looking at their phones and whatever. Um, and then you have days where you, you tell a great story about history, about the past and students come up afterward and they're like, that was amazing. That story you told about the, uh, you know, the, the, the digging of the trenches at the beginning of the first world war, I've never heard anything like that before, you know? Um, and that was great, but really I, I knew inside that my, my, my first love was always music. And, uh, eventually I just decided to get out of academia and get back to music. So were there parts of academia that you had to give up in order to go back to music and vice versa in both cases? Yes. When I was teaching, when I was a tenured faculty member, full-time, um, professor, uh, I didn't 
do a whole lot of music. I did some, I produced some records for other bands. I would do the occasional show with my band. Um, we're called, we're called Ominous Sea Pods. And we, as I mentioned, we got off the road and this was around 2001 or two that we decided to stop touring. And that's when I went back to grad school, but we didn't, um, we didn't want to never ever play again. You know, we wanted to do shows. So we would get together and we would do one or two shows a year. And that was always fun. And then I, you know, a friend would say, Hey, do you want to come and can you fill in and do a show somewhere? And I would do that too. Um, um, so yeah, I didn't, I definitely, and I was married and I had two kids, you know, at a certain point, um, I had my first daughter. We had our first daughter when, uh, uh, when I was working on my dissertation, um, which was, you know, kind of added to <laughs> added to the challenge. Um, and, uh, you know, I would spend I would go to New York City and go to the New York Historical Society when I was working on my dissertation. My, my the subject of my dissertation was about Thomas Paine, who was this American. Well, he was an Englishman, but he moved to uh, the colonies in 1774 and he wrote a pamphlet called Common Sense, which was this by massive, you know, it was like the Harry Potter of 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 publish publications in 17th in January 1776. It sold like 600,000 copies. And uh, we were a population of like 1.2 million at the time. So it was a massive, massive bestseller. And um, most historians consider it to be a, a significant force in convincing the Americans to to push for independence. Um, so a lot of his works were at the New York, at the New York Historical Society and I'd go and I'd spend a lot of weekends there, um, which I digress, but the, the teaching thing, yes, I had to sacrifice music as far as, um, sacrificing academia for music. I made the ultimate sacrifice. I just left, you know, I had, um, I had gotten to a point where, I mean, I was burning out, um, honestly, and uh, I wasn't I wasn't getting the kind of fulfillment that I really hoped for. And I certainly felt like I was teaching students who just weren't engaged anymore, you know, which is it is also another, you know, intellectual conversation or, or philosophical conversation about. God, I'm, I'm going to sound like the old man now, but, you know, the, the, the generation of students that was coming up were just not as engaged Sure. Um, and, and not just, you know, they were focused on their lives and their friends in a way that I hadn't seen before. And it certainly wasn't my experience. Of course, I had friends and went to college parties in college and did all the things you do when you're in college. But, you know, I had a genuine interest in learning. Um, and when I was in the classroom, we didn't have cell phones or smartphones. Uh, so if you wanted to communicate with your friends, uh, you know, I, I had a, 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 you know, a, a student who I was madly in love with and we would write notes to each other with hearts on them and in the classroom. And that, that, you know, that's how you communicated. And back then. Are we frozen? I think he may be frozen. Ted, I think you're frozen. He might be talking away right now. Oh no. I'm glad he touched on burnout though. Yeah, me too. Okay. Ted. <laughs> oh, no. Frozen up. Oh, there you go. Oh, oh you're there. You're, you're back. There. When did you lose me? Um, after the hearts. The sending of the notes on hearts. Oh, he's oh, frozen no. again. 
something is good. That's okay. That's what editing is for. Wait for him to come back. I don't know. You might have to log out and log back in. If you can hear me, log out and log back in. Oh, he's back. Ooh. I think I'm back. You are you are I back. So uh boy, that has never happened, at least on my end. Well, lucky the... luckily for you, it happened on my pocket. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um <laughs> Well, you know, I'm sure you guys have the experience of the, doing a little, you know, a yeah. little edit here, a little snip snip, and oh, yeah. um, <laughs> sure. it'll be our little secret. Uh, so yeah, making drawing hearts on notes to my girlfriend. Um, I did notice, um, I just wanted to pick up on something that you said a little while ago. Yeah. Um, you said that you had burned out and yes. that was one of the reasons you walked away or one of the yes. main reasons. Um, can you just describe maybe the symptoms of what you were experiencing during the time you were burning out? Absolutely. And uh, now we're going to go deep. So if you, if you are both willing to indulge me, um, things are good about to get pretty raw here. So, um, Badly. There were a lot of things going on in my life um, during the time that I was um, working on my PhD and when I started teaching. Um, uh, so I'll, I'll start by saying I'm in recovery. And, um, you know, I'm a recovered alcoholic. <clears throat> I drank for a long time and um, alcohol played a role. Um, I was, uh, in a marriage that really was not working and, um, I was very unhappy and I had two daughters and, um, you know, in my heart, I knew I couldn't stay in this marriage any longer. You know, it was it, my heart, head and my heart, you know, were both telling me that, the, that there was no love anymore. And it's the story of, um, a lot of married couples and uh you know one of the one of the things is you know the children and i love my children more than anything in the world and i i just i died every every moment i thought about the idea of of not staying in the marriage um because of the kids um and i i've talked with many many people i'm sure you you have too you know people who just stay in a marriage and try to make it work because they they're kids they don't want to uh disrupt their lives and <clears throat> create any trauma but you know i i went to some therapy and i eventually after about a year came to the decision that it would be better ultimately if if the kids grew up with two relatively happy parents who who no longer lived together but you know were still uh able to be loving you know happy parents um to them uh but and and i did that sober um, I've had fairly long periods of sobriety or I had had fairly long periods of sobriety in my life. But, uh, when the, when we made the decision or I made this decision to, to leave the marriage, um, about six months after that, I started drinking again. So I'm teaching full time. I'm going through the process of, of grieving 
the thought of not being able to put my kids to sleep every single night. You know, we have a custody arrangement and I see my kids, um, you know, often they, they come and stay with me half about half the week and stay with me on weekends, every other weekend and things like that. So that was OK, but it was really tough. Um, and, uh, you know, I did what any good alcoholic does. I, I used a mind or mood altering substance substance to, to change the way I felt. And um, here I am. I'm, I live an hour and 20 minutes from the college I taught at. So I was waking up at, at 530 in the morning every day to drive an hour and 20 minutes each way to get to school and teach because I chose to live in a place that was a few miles from my kids. You know, there, there was there was no it was uh, it was, uh, you know, no, no, there was no other option for me. That was what it was going to be. So I was working really hard and I was going to, to school to teach. And I had met someone at the school, another <laughs> another little uh, wrinkle, which is I met someone at the school and we fell in love. And this was about six months after I had separated and I was not looking. I had no interest in getting involved. And but I just met someone and, and, and we really, we really loved each other a lot and we got together. Um, but, uh, it was, it was particularly tough because, um, we were both drinking a lot and, you know, I was sort of trying desperately not to or trying desperately to stay sober. And uh, so it really wasn't a good fit as much as I loved her. You know, she was someone who was choosing alcohol over, sobriety and I was trying to choose sobriety and you know it was a it was a combustible mixture and I couldn't I just couldn't do it so in the midst of uh being a being really a, a, an alcoholic late stage you know alcoholic that I was who was was not just drinking every day I was chemically dependent on alcohol I had to drink I mean it was I would experience pretty serious withdrawal symptoms um, within about 90 minutes of my last drink. So I was very far along. Um, and I was teaching and I was unhappy, um, you know, going into a classroom and teaching students who just don't really give a crap. I don't know if I'm allowed to swear on this podcast, but who don't care day after day after day. Sounds like that um, was a big part of it for you too. Oh, it was huge. It was just the, the reaction you're getting from the students. It was huge. It was, it made me sad. I, you know, I, because I not only do, am I a curious person, but I have always had on some level, some commitment to service, um, to serving a community um, or doing something in whatever small way I can to try and help people and to try and maybe make uh, our, our political community and our, our sort of civilization a little better by maybe having helping to be a part of producing a generation that's informed um you know and uh you know to help um our republic you know um to have an, an, a generation of informed citizens and things like that um and to pass on knowledge but and it just i knew i had hit a brick wall when it came to that and that was the that was the biggest thing in my mind i knew I couldn't keep doing it. I needed to move on and I needed to get back to something that I just really loved and also could be of service. You know, music is a way to help to, to be a part of a community where people come to see shows and it's, you know, it fills them. 
ideally on the best nights it fills them with some real joy and um music saves lives as far as i'm concerned and so i knew that was what i wanted to do it was a risk but there was a perfect storm that just sort of culminated in me saying i can't be in this relationship with this person anymore i worked with her at the college i was absolutely devastated and heartbroken about the relationship i was drinking every day it was just you know the, that moment this concatenation of 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 events and one morning i woke up and just said uh you know, I quit unceremoniously. I'm out. And yeah. uh, it also happened to be not that long after that, that I, I got sober, you know? So, so, so. you've, you've had periods of um, sobriety. Some have been longer than others. How did you, how, yes. like, how, how did you do during COVID? If you don't mind me asking. Uh, I, I've been sober. I just celebrated my two year anniversary of sobriety on july 26th thank you um so i was sober through it all um and uh yeah um and it's it that that's not the you know i had of course i mean i was alone a lot my kids are here but when they're not here i'm, I'm you know i'm single now i've been single for a while um so i live in this house um that i live in alone except for my, when my kids are here and I'll, I'll I, I'm at this moment where I'm like, oh, I want to share this thing. And I probably should because I want to be on my I'll, show. Let's say this. If you want, if you think afterwards, you can always message me and tell me, take that part out. Yeah. Um, and I, you know what? I should just do it because uh, at least on my show, I want to be as honest and I am as honest as I can possibly be because I for listeners you know, for no other reason than for listeners. And if they hear something that helps them, then that, that's, it's all worth it. Um, so I'll first let me back up and say, I, I got sober back in 2002 and I stayed sober for six and a half years, but I didn't, I, I didn't really become a, a member of any kind of a fellowship. I was not in recovery. I was just sober and that's a miserable life. Anyone who's dealt with addiction, um, uh, and periods of, of being dry knows it's, it's just brutal. You know, you're just white knuckling it and you can't stop thinking about whatever your drink or drug is. And um, <clears throat> so eventually, I, I mean, I always went back to drinking and then I would get sober. That was my first and, and true love was alcohol. I experimented with other drugs, but alcohol was like my, my darling. And um, I kept going back and I, I was arrogant. I, I thought I could think my way out of it time and time and again, time and time again, I, I thought I could uh, think my way out of it. I thought I understood the nature of the disease, but I really didn't. You know, here I am, this guy, I'm like, oh, I'm kind of smart. And, you know, I should know like what this alcoholism is all about. But I, I really didn't. Um, and it wasn't until that all that whole situation with um, getting out of this relationship that was really unhealthy, leaving uh, academia deciding after getting my, you know, my ass handed to me time after time after time that I needed help, real help. I went to uh, rehab in Pennsylvania and I stayed there for four months. I went to, you know, the inpatient was 30 days and then I lived in a sober house for four months. And at that point I had really given up. I had surrendered. I wrote in my, they gave me a journal you know, as they often do at rehab, you know, like for your, your moments of reflection as you sit by the, the koi pond, um, you know, and, 
in this nice, I mean, it was a beautiful rehab up in the Pocono Journaling Mountains. is great. It's, it's such a great tool. I agree, although I don't do it. Um, uh, I, I mean, it's one of those things. I agree with you 100%. Most people don't. Yeah. And most people agree. <laughs> but most yeah. people also have yeah, a really exactly. nice journal that they've bought somewhere. That's right. true. Have a right. This sort of <laughs> first three or four pages are written on. Yeah, it's this nice bespoke journal, you know, um, and uh, yeah, and, and but I was in this beautiful, it was in the Pocono Mountains in Pennsylvania, and it was, in, you know, it was a gorgeous place, and you could just sit and little, reflect and look up at the mountains, and um, but I'll just say this, and, and maybe some people out there um, who struggle with addiction or alcoholism uh, or are in recovery would will identify with this. When I, when I went into that rehab that day, I showed up totally intoxicated as, as uh, they sometimes recommend, you know, you just go there, you just, you know, get someone to get you, you well, the, the bottom line is to get there. And if, you know, and especially if you're trying to help someone and um, you know, sometime, and also because alcohol is a, is can uh, alcoholism can be a fatal uh, withdrawal process. You know, sometimes um, they, they tell you, just, you know, get to a hospital, get to a doctor, be under a doctor's care when you detox. And if you have to take a couple swigs of whatever to get you in the door, do it, you know? And um, so that's what I did. And then they, they started administering some, some detox drugs for me, blah, blah, blah. And they went through the process and they gave me a journal and I went up to my room and I sat down in my room. I was, I was absolutely hopeless and depressed and I didn't know when I was going to see my kids again and all those things. So I, I opened the journal and I took out a pen and I, I wrote one sentence, um, which was, I have no hope, no coping skills and no gratitude. And uh, that was the only thing I wrote in that journal that the entire entire time I was there. And, uh, that was the truest sentence I could possibly write, you know? And, uh, so I went through this rehab and, and, and I really, after the fog cleared, I had a great counselor and he said, listen, you got to try something different. You know, you got to take suggestions. And, uh, and I said, okay, and what do you want me to do? And he, he said, well, first of all, I think you should stay, don't leave whatever you do. And when the 30 days are up, you should go over to the, the sober house and you should stay for 90 days. And, uh, at other times in my, in my attempts to get sober, I would have said, no, 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 no. I need to get home. I have stuff to do. Uh, but in that moment, I thought this is a moment, this is the moment, you know, I have a professional here and my, I know in my gut, I know, that this is a chance to press pause on life uh, for a minute and really focus on getting well. You know, I was, I was deeply unwell. I was physically dying. I was mentally ill, you know, and, and this was an opportunity. And I, I said, okay. And I took it and I got a great um, sponsor and really just took a deep dive into the, into the fellowship of which I am a member. And, um, you know, I came home from that rehab, um, in November of 2019 and literally the day after I got home, I got a call from my ex-wife that my youngest daughter was needed an, um, an MRI and, you know, my heart just absolutely sank and, you know, 
we found out a few weeks after that, that, that she had cancer and, uh, yeah. And it was, it was, you know, metastatic cancer and it, it was a, um, it is, it is a very, very, very rare form of cancer called epithelioid sarcoma, um, which they had almost no data on no research on no real science, you know, and, uh, it was, you know, it's just, you know, I'm like, holy. Well, that is horrible. I'm so yes. sorry for your daughter. Like, thank you. And how I, old, yeah. How old was she when you got that diagnosis? She was nine. Wow. So young. I'm sorry. That's terrible. I know. How did thank you, you deal with that? How, how did you <laughs> deal with that? Like, you know, I think it's the same. It's in many ways, it's this, whatever happened to me. Uh, the day that my first my oldest daughter was born when I was sitting in the hospital waiting room um, my wife at the time had been you know taken into the pre-op and all of the sort of process to get it was an my first daughter was an emergency c-section so it started off a normal blue sky kind of day and then bam you know it was like this is happening now five weeks early and um I was absolutely terrified. Like I was coming apart. I was like, I didn't sign up for this. I don't know if I'm going to be a dad. I don't know what I'm going to do. You know, yeah, I was times, I was like times a million, right? I, yeah, I was absolutely like just flabbergasted by the situation. I was like, I don't know how to be a dad. I'm standing in the yeah. waiting room in this area, in this staging area, sort of in, in hospital scrubs with slippers on my feet and on my head, uh, you know, cap on my head. And I'm absolutely terrified and full of anxiety i don't know how 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 do you know what to do um you know there's you all know. these questions yeah and then you know what the, the the nurse came in and said it's time to come into the room i walked into the room my uh, ex-wife was on the table they're they're doing the c-section there's blood i'm like oh my god and then 30 seconds later they hand me a baby <laughs> You know, and I'm like, oh. is lovely, isn't it? But I'll, I'll tell you what it was, you know, her birth and 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 my second my youngest daughter's birth were the two most important moments of my life. And but but that one being the first time when they handed me her and I was holding her, I felt very calm. Mm. I suddenly was like, OK. However many million years of evolution uh, just kicked in. And I know what I'm, I know what to do now. I just felt calm. And I was like, I'm a dad. And I think that same thing happened the day that my youngest daughter was diagnosed. I just, of course, I felt desperate fear and worry and anxiety about the unknown. But I was like, I'm, 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 this is what I, this is what I do. This is like, you know, to be a father right now. So, and, and, and thank the universe that I had made the decision to go to Pennsylvania and get sober. I mean, mm -hmm. the, the, actually one of the things that I got, I just wept actually, you know, because I thought to myself, because I'm not, uh, you know, everybody has their thing. I'm not, I don't believe in God. I'm not a, I'm not a religious person, but I'm a spiritual person. And on a deep level, I think that the, 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 the awesomeness of, of this planet, I mean, indescribably wonderful awesomeness of this planet and the universe and everything that's sort of connected together 
I, I'm certainly open to the possibility that there are these sort of energies and forces at play that I can't understand or explain. But I have to say that that moment, I thought to myself, some someone or something or, or some energy wanted me to be sober yeah. so that I could be there for her. And maybe that sounds incredibly self-absorbed to even think that. I don't think so at all. I don't, I, yeah, I don't think so at all either. I think, yeah, I agree. There had to have been forces there because in order for you to even deal with that, the news in, in a calm and, and fatherly way, you would have had to have your, have had to have had your head on straight, you yeah. know? Yeah. So, I, but uh, yeah. I imagine it was, even 10 times more difficult than anyone could even imagine hearing that about their child. Yeah. But you know what? I mean, and this is the thing, and I know I certainly have come to know and have known people who had cancer, who have had relatives who have had cancer, friends and, and even children yeah. who have had cancer. Um, you know, you're, you're the very first thing that you sort of immediately think of, and it's what you kind of what you're what is on your mind constantly is the person who has cancer. You know, you, you, you your perspective goes out the window. Your your uh, in most cases, your your sense of self kind of collapses a little bit because it becomes really about this person. And and I, you know, of course, especially in the early stages when word people was getting word was getting out to people who knew us that she had cancer, you know, we get we got the reaction that 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 you you two gave, which is a natural reaction, which is a feeling of compassion. And your heart goes out and you say, I'm really sorry, you know, and I'm I, this must be awful to go through. And, you know, I personally, when I, my my reaction is is always like, you know, it's of course, it's difficult. And uh, for me personally, as her father, as you know, it's the worst nightmare of a parent, you know, but at the same time, no matter how hard it is for me, it's it is a walk in the park compared to her personal experience with this. You know, it, it's just a walk in the park. Yeah. yeah. And so I always say, you know, I'm OK. Um, uh, it's you know, we're just we're just kind of living day by day here and, and she's going through treatment and and I love her. And, and you know, when I, when I mentioned that when I when I that night when I was in rehab and I wrote, I had no hope, no, no gratitude and no coping skills. Uh, my heart is absolutely full of gratitude now. Every single day I wake up and I, I don't mean to sound like, you know, a Zen Buddhist who hovers two inches off the floor when I meditate. But uh, because I'm not my, my life sucks sometimes and I have lots of challenges, but I, I, I like the DMV. Remember at the beginning yeah. of the conversation, <laughs> I was like, oh, God, I could have talked two hours on the DMV. But um, no, I, I, I'm full of gratitude, really. I, I don't know what's going to happen. I really, you know, the doctors don't know what's going to happen. Yeah, but um, see, much like what you wrote, not only do you have gratitude, you have hope and hope. coping yes. skills. Yes, I have all three now. Thank you for 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 that callback, because it's true. I can, and I think about that all the time. I think to myself that the most honest thing I ever I said or put to paper was that sentence when I walked that first day of rehab. And, you know, thanks to the fellowship of which I am a member and thanks to a real recovery, not dry time, you know, not just abstaining from a drink or a mind or mood altering substance, but actual recovery. Recovery, yeah.
and recovery is a beautiful thing. Um, I have all three of those things now and I, I'm, I, I cherish them. I, I, you know, I do never, I never want to lose them again. What an incredible thing to have accomplished. Well, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> uh, I, I, I mean, I just, I just see it as I finally got out of my own head. I finally stopped sort of making stupid choices and instead listening to people um, and, and checking in. I have a sponsor. I have a great sponsor. And, and believe me, I get, I get these uh, what I believe to be the most genius ideas ever, <laughs> ever contrived. And I call my sponsor and he's like, no, no, a hundred times. No, uh, you know, and, and, and that's a wonderful thing. You know, what the, does the, he think of the podcast? I haven't told him yet. I haven't said anything to him about it yet. Not that I'm hiding it from him. It's just it's just one of those things. It just hasn't come up. But I, you know, um, yeah, well, I, I have to. Um, in fact, I also need to tell him that he needs to give me my two year uh, coin. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, no, I haven't told him yet, but I'm, I know he'll be delighted about it. Um, but uh, yeah. And, and, you know, kind of going back to you asked originally about what it's like during the pandemic, um, being a sober person and adding into the mix, you know, having mm -hmm. a child with cancer. It was awful at times. I, I got terribly. I went through a terrible bout of depression for a few months where I just couldn't even get off the couch. I was, you know. And I and there was one time during my two years here where I, I desperately wanted to drink as I was approaching my my first year anniversary. I, I wanted to drink so bad. You know, it, it came down to a weather, you know, just that kind of split second decision to call someone. And if there's something that I could possibly convey to anyone in your audience who who's struggling with with addiction or who you know, is, is sober and, and wants to use, you know, it's that call that you make that could save your life. You know, it's that call to a sponsor or a friend. And one of the things that I experienced a million times over, and I know many, many people who have, who have relapsed is you don't make that call. That's what happens. You know, you don't make that call. And the reason you don't make that call is because you know, they're going to try to talk you out of it, you know? And, and, and this, yes. Why would I make that call? I really want to drink. I don't want to call my sponsor because he's going to talk me out of it. So I'm not going to make the call. Then so you pick up the drink. COVID. Yes. And then you're, you're right back. You're off to the races and who knows what's going to happen after that. Once you take that first drink or you use again, mm -hmm. you know, so make that freaking call <laughs> America. Oh, we're in Canada and Canada. Oh my, this is, this is, I did not know that. Yeah, I was going to say you went to you you taught New York, but I didn't actually ask you where you lived. New York is my home. Okay, very cool. Yeah, we're in well, I'm in Niagara Falls. Okay. I'm in London, Ontario. And she's in London. I've been to both places more nice. than a few times. We uh I've been to yeah, I mean we my band played in Canada quite a bit. We played in in Toronto a lot. Um we played in in London a couple times. Um and of course, I've been to Toronto and Montreal and places like that as a as a, just a curious traveling kind of fellow. <laughs> I love it up there. Awesome. Yeah. Um, do you find like when you were drinking and you were in the band, mm -hmm. do you find like there was a lot of uh, drug and alcohol use around you and that sort of contributed to 
maybe the development of your habit? Absolutely. I mean, I was, boy, you know, this is one of those questions. Um, uh, I, I, I know that genetically, according to the science, I was absolutely predisposed. You know, that switch was inside me somewhere and it was just going to take a couple of drinks here and there to make flip that switch. But I also think that, you know, uh, my experience was a combination of a genetic predisposition, a, a kind of sensitive personality, the world having sharp edges and, you know, all those kinds of things. And also I just drank <laughs> like crazy and sort of drank myself over that, that very hard to see line between maybe, um, you know, uh, hard drinking and alcoholism. Uh, but here's the thing, you know, when I was in college, I did just like everybody else did. It was a Friday night. We're going to happy hour with our chalked driver's licenses or, you know, our fake IDs. And we're going to get slammed on cheap pictures of, of swill, uh, you know, but I got into a band and, and I can say this, that I don't know many professions that are like this. Uh, there may be many, but, but being in a touring band, it's kind of like a prerequisite to drink on the job. Um, you know, how many jobs can you think of where as part of your negotiation to do the work, you have a contract that you sign with someone that says, as part of our agreement to work at your location, you need to supply two cases of beer and a bottle of Jack Daniels. Yeah. I used to be a, a bartender for weddings and the DJs always got a few drinks in there. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't always just beer and, 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 and whiskey or whatever was backstage, you know, um, there were, of course there were other drugs and I was the kind of guy who was kind of okay with tinkering around with some of those things. You know, um, I did, <laughs> I, uh, I was, I was kind of a daily pot smoker in from, you know, I smoked it recreational and recreational in high school at parties. But when I got to college, it was every day, morning, noon and night, you know. Um, and then I in college, that was when I first tried psychedelic drugs. So I was experimenting with mushrooms and acid and um, and then on to cocaine and things like that. And I did that on and off for for periods of time when I was touring. But like I kind of said before, the other drugs uh, just didn't just didn't do for me what alcohol did they didn't take me to that good place that alcohol took me yeah so but yes you're in a band you're surrounded i uh, we were in a five-piece band everybody in the band drank some like i did some just a couple beers at a show or whatever but you just always you're whatever whatever weird stuff you're doing other people around you are doing <laughs> so it kind of reaffirms uh you know that okay i'm not i'm not that bad because, you know, my my friend over there is passed out and, you know, um, in a pile of puke or whatever. And so, you know, hey, I'm still conscious, you know, so maybe I'm not as bad as he is. You know, that that thing happens. But yeah. And, and, and again, another thing, too, I guess I should say, is that this is a consequence free life. At least it was for me. You know, I went from being in, in college and just generally in life having consequences for whatever behavior I indulged in, whether it was failing a class because I skipped class or whether it was getting punished because I was, you know, I went out and I was living at home I, and I got grounded. This is a situation where you're, you're in a band and you are traveling in whatever, you know, a 15 passenger van and a trailer or an RV or a bus or whatever. 
and you're just going from town to town and, and, and you show up at the venue, you crack open a beer, you do a sound check. You know, you can I, I, I was um, blessed or cursed with the ability to drink an enormous amount of alcohol and still be highly functional and play a show, you know, play drums for two and a half or three hours every night, wake up the next morning, be horribly hungover, wake, you know, do it all over again, all over day again. after day, after day, after day, just What's sweating that? it out up there on stage. Yeah. Like anxious on the verge of a panic attack hung over until I got to my next drink, you know, yeah. uh, usually when we loaded in or first, or, you know, when we were ready to sound check, you go to the bar and you're like, all right, we need, we need booze as soon as possible. Um, so yeah, it was it, it, 100%. It was a lifestyle that not only facilitated incredible amounts of drinking and drug use, but also didn't really um, have any consequences for that behavior aside from your hangover. So we could do it for days and days and years and years. Wow. And then it's really difficult to get out of. <laughs> Once you cross the line, I've, I've never known anyone uh, who has crossed the line into alcoholic drinking, who has ever been able to go back, you know, um, i just, it just doesn't happen. And, and, and there are plenty of people out there who are, are, um, hard drinkers who abuse alcohol, who binge drink or things like that. Yeah. Binge drinking uh, is huge in the, in, in the, when you're in your twenties, like you had said, mm -hmm. um, and most people don't realize that, you know, they're actually an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. you know binge drinking alcoholic that drinks till they puke every saturday and friday yeah oh it's only on the weekends yeah That's the yeah right here right it's only on the weekends i'm not an alcoholic yeah and i mean you can be a binge drinker and not be an alcoholic and you can be an, an alcohol abuser and not be an alcoholic um al to be an alcoholic puts you in a unique category and and that and that category is essentially if when you take a drink, you have little or no control over the amount you drink once you've started drinking <clears throat> or while not drinking, you have little or no control over your obsession about drinking when you're not drinking, yeah. you're kind of in the alcoholic, you know, neighborhood and, um, and, and to the, yeah. the constant thinking about it, right? It's an obsession, you know, it's an obsession of the mind. Yeah. And a physical allergy, you know, the obsession of the mind, you just, you just gotta, you know, if you don't do anything about it, if you don't get help, you're gonna pick up a drink at some point, you know, you can hold out for a while, but the obsession is becomes too strong. And then the physical allergy is once you take that drink, you're, you're, you're in, you can't, you cannot stop, you know, um, and you're just going to keep drinking until, until you get help or, or something stops you, whatever it is. It's interesting um, because drugs are so easy to see, you know, you need to have that next hit and you can tell the person needs the next hit when it's hard mm -hmm. drugs, but alcohol is so different. You don't see those same things so physically prominent as you do with someone that does, you know, hard, I'm talking hard yeah, drugs where it's heroin. Like can, yeah. Or opioids or anything like that, you know, but it's so interesting that alcohol doesn't have that. You don't have that same or I guess not that you don't have it or can't easier see it. to hide. It's, it's easier to hide those, those triggers than it is for someone that's on hard drugs. Yeah. And I would say also because alcohol is legal and, you know, yeah. socially absolutely condoned and encouraged, and you're just bombarded with advertisements um, sure. 
everywhere you look for alcohol, you, you, you can do things like get absolutely hammered with your friends at a bar and, and, you know, streak down the street naked uh, and, and throw up, you know, in, into a potted plant, you know, outside of Starbucks and, and wake up the next morning and everyone will just go, wow, you got really wild last night. That was, that was incredible. But they don't think you're an alcoholic. You know, no. you can, you can have those moments. You can even get a DWI and, and, you know, your friends will be like, I guess you just had one too many that night. And, you know, they, they don't immediately conclude you're an alcoholic and you may not be, but it's not the same as like, you know, you, you, you shoot heroin in the bathroom with your friends, you know, they're not going to be like, Oh, I guess you just had a just little sort of one off <laughs> curiosity, you know, like immediately they'll be very concerned, you know, they'll yeah. be like, what's going on, you know? Yeah. So it is different. And, and you it can is. you can get by quite a bit longer as an alcoholic without really facing any any questions from people or, or consequences. You're right. Very true. <laughs> oh, was yeah. that from a personal account, that story of. The planter oh, st streaking through the street. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, I never did that. Um, and I, in some ways I have regrets. The old school uh, movie. But, <laughs> yeah, old, exactly. <laughs> That's exactly what I was thinking of. Uh, no, I, you know, that never happened. Um, certainly lots of other things did, but, but not that. So I'm curious a little bit more about your music career. Okay. Um, I wanted to know if you've done any co-writing on any of these songs that you've played drums on, or if you have any co-writing like credits. Um, I am not a songwriter. I'll just say that right out of the gate. Um, I am a writer. Um, like I said, I, I, I was someone who wrote a lot of fiction, a lot of short stories, and obviously wrote a book length doctoral dissertation. So I know how to do that. Um, but as far as songwriting, no, I mean, there, you know, I could point to a few examples over the course of the career of the band in a rehearsal or in another environment where I contributed a, a, a chorus to a song um, or a couple verses, you know, that needed to be kind of filled in. Um, but that's it, you know, really. I and, and I'm happy about that. It was it's fun. But really, my thing was always playing the drums. And actually, I'm, I'm quite a good singer. And I now I'm in a, I'm in a band where, where I'm singing a lot. I'm doing harmonies and things like that. But I didn't do that at all. When I was in my band, the ominous sea pods, I just I in retrospect, I, I was it, well, for one, I was self-conscious about I didn't think I had a good voice. And also I was like, I just want to play drums, man. You know, I don't want to be the guy I don't because I thought it looked cheesy. I don't want to be the drummer with the like you know, microphone dangling it does down. Kind of look cheesy I, right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I say, yeah. I mean, it's not so sexy. I, you you're speaking my language. I agree <laughs> with you 100%. I just think it looks kind of stupid. And I, and, um, uh, you know, I say this as a drummer and even worse are the dudes with the, with this sort of ear, you know, the, whatever they call that microphone that goes from your ear down in front of yeah. your mouth. You know, what's um, really cool though, is the harmonica. I'll go for a harmonica <laughs> any day. You know, I, I don't I, I don't have the fondest memories about harmonica. Oh, no. um, well, yeah, because this is one of those little known secrets that when you're in a touring band, you're constantly accosted by people, usually in various states of inebriation, who just want to jam with you guys. And they have they have no bones about coming right up in your face and saying, dude, uh, I need to sit in with you guys on the second set. I brought my harmonica. <laughs> you know, 
And uh, and that, you know, harmonica is the most common or at least was the most common for us instrument that people would just barge up to you oh. and say, I'm jamming with you guys. Just just lay down a nice blues groove and I have my harmonica and I'm going to kill it. Um, so sounds and, like something uh, I would do. Yeah. Do yeah. you play? Do you no, play the but I totally oh. do it. If I had <laughs> I'd been drinking, I totally would have. Yeah. You guys just let me in the band. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny because I was just talking. To, so so I, I should just say real quickly, uh, when my band Omnissy Pods got off the road, we all sort of went and did our thing and we would play once in a while. Oh, someone is doing um, some gardening outside. So I'm going to shut the window. Um, but my bass player, Tom, or my bass player, the bass player uh, of, of our band, Tom Perosi and I um, have worked together on a lot of other projects. And now we're working on uh, we, we we did make a record together with a friend of ours named Lo Faber and uh, it's a great new album and um, we're touring in support of it right now mm-hmm. and uh, all summer and fall. Is that the link um, you sent me? That is. Yes. It's, it's um, the, the album is called Claiborne Avenue. Yeah. And you can find it. it. Yeah. You can find it on Spotify or Apple music or iTunes or whatever. It's uh, just search Dr. Low D O C T O R low L O. Uh, and you can find his music in this new record. Claiborne Avenue that I play drums on and my my uh, companion musical cohort Tom played bass on and we were at a gig and uh, just a couple weekends ago and I said to him because um, we have so much shared history from being on the road in the sea pods we started talking about the, the the fans and the the general sort of mutated personalities you see uh, at some shows and they're all awesome but sometimes someone shows comes up to you and is um you look at them and they look at you and you know, they're coming and you know, they're going to start a conversation and you think to yourself, like this person is either going to be really friendly or really menacing. And you don't, you just don't know. And something you get, you get these drunk guys who show up and at the very beginning, they're like, yeah, greatest drummer I've ever seen. And they give you a hug and they're like, I love you. (laughs) And then like later they just turn on a dime and they're like, if you don't play a drum solo, I'm going to murder you. You know, you're like, oh, God, this is terrifying. You know, and, and oh my goodness. Yeah. Ultimately, I mean, I'm here. I'm still alive. So ultimately, they are harmless, but they can suddenly just appear very menacing, you know. And uh, and so, yeah. And, and, and that that can sometimes be the case of the guy who comes up with his harmonica. Yeah. And you're like, no, man, sorry, we're, we're, we're just we have a set to do. And, you know, you never know that it could just be like, I'm going to slash your tires if you don't let me play harmonica, you know. Yeah. If it's you don't crazy. Let them, if you don't let them in. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. So now I do sing. I, uh, I actually have a pretty good range. And um, I'm, so I'm, I'm singing harmonies on most songs in, with uh, Dr. Lowe, this new project. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, really cool. And did you say you're also a recording engineer? I am. Yeah. So I've, how how did a drummer become a recording engineer? And also, did you were you part of the collab and creation of, of that latest record? Claiborne yes. Off? Yes. To, yes. To both. Um, how did a drummer become a recording engineer? And in, in a lot of ways, it's it's simple. I just hated the way our record sounded uh-huh. after after they'd been mixed by other people. You know, <laughs> I just I was just I was never happy with them. Um. It was, you know, it was the early to mid 90s. And, you know, there were there was this new thing where these, you know, guys were getting these somewhat relatively cheap 
systems to record music and calling themselves engineers. And yeah. they were they were relying on on um, mixing choices and mixing techniques that were pretty outdated at that point. And um, yeah, especially drum sounds like it's one of those things that is often overlooked as far as people who love music and listen to music, but just don't necessarily think about drum sounds are basically the most important thing you're going to get on an album. If you don't have professional sounding drums, you're going to have just a demo. You know, you're not going to have a great sounding record because, you know, amping guitars and things like miking guitars and things is pretty easy. You get a, and vocals easy. Yeah. Um, but drums are more difficult. They're, yeah. they're a very resonant acoustic instrument. As soon as you start putting mics up on a drum kit, you start having potential phase problems. There's a whole bunch of things that can go wrong. The drummer really needs to know how to, to know how to hit the drums, you know. Um, so I, I just, <clears throat> at a certain point, I was like, I just want to do this. And uh, I was also very fascinated with the gear. That was the other reason. I'm a gear nerd. And we'd be in the studio and people would be mixing and I'd be looking at this gear and watching the, 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 the you know, the little needles moving and, and they were hot and warm and glowing. And I was like, this is really cool. So I, I basically taught myself um, in some ways through close observation and also through uh, working with some people, sitting down and mixing together with people and some intuition, you know, and I got to a point where I got pretty good at it and I started, um, you know, recording albums for other bands and um, also producing albums for other bands because that came to be pr me pretty naturally too. Yeah. the production side of things. And uh, yeah, I did that a lot. And I have a, a pretty extensive collection of mics and, and gear. I have a home studio. <clears throat> nice. So for the as far as the new Claiborne Avenue album goes, it was all done remotely. Uh, oh, wow. it, was done, it was done during the pandemic. Yeah. So yeah. every everybody and there are a ton of great, I mean, really top notch world class musicians on that. Yeah. On Claiborne Avenue. Adele, like um, when I was listening to it, I could hear like the violins and the piano and just full of everything. So you had to piece yeah. that all together. Yep. Everybody wow. recording in their home or in a studio somewhere um, and people compiling. So I recorded my drums, obviously, in my home studio. And, uh, you know, we had, you know, um, Dave Agar, who's a who's been nominated for several, several, several Grammys playing cello on the on the record. We had wow. some world class mandolin players and um, B3 Hammond organ B3 players. And, you know, it, it, it's quite a project with, with a lot of top notch players. Um, and uh, yeah, so, you know, and then I would send the multi tracks of the files to to low Faber, who was, you know, it was his album. He was writing it and. Um, and he, he, uh, at one point he was working, he was mixing the album and he said, okay, I got, I, there's, you know, one of the songs on the album is called ship. It's sort of like a kind of fun country rock kind of song. And, uh, he was working on a mix and he said, yeah, this mix just sounds really crowded to me or to me for some reason. I'm just, it just doesn't sound right. Can you, can you take a crack at it? And I was like, yeah, sure. So I mixed the song ship on the album. Cool. Wow. I um, can't wait to listen. Yeah. Yeah. I hope you like it. It's a, it's actually, it's, it's a beautiful album. I, I mean, I'm, I'm not just saying that because I'm on it. I, I have to tell you, Lowe is a really masterful songwriter and he wrote um, a lot of great songs. And one of them I talked about at length on uh, an ep the episode of my podcast that I did with Dave Egar, the uh, cello player that I just mentioned, because he played all over that album, the Claiborne Avenue album, this song called Kenosha Baby. Uh, which is a song about Kenosha, about the violence and the sort of racial strife in, in Kenosha. 
And it's really, it's just, it's such an evocative and emotional song. It, it's very moving and, and timely. And I haven't heard a song like that in a long time, you know, where someone write, like say, for example, a song like Ohio by Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, where, where they wrote a song that was angry and sad and, and um, kind of heartbroken for America after the shooting at Kent State. And you just don't hear songs like that much anymore. And and Lowe really beautifully wrote this song called Kenosha Baby that is 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 timely, but also timeless and 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 just captures the emotion and the fear and and you know all of these other this wide range of emotions that that he felt about what happened in Kenosha, the 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 story of Kyle Rittenhouse and everything else that that happened there. So I that's my, you know. You know how like you go to wherever and they have the, you know, top picks of Susie, the barista, her top picks of <laughs> of new music to listen to. Uh, let's put Claiborne Avenue by Dr. Lowe on that list. I'm going to take a listen to that one. Me too. Um, now, I know you've had obviously some really awesome musicians on the podcast are there any new collaborations coming up? The big one, as I mentioned at the top of the conversation, is is uh, Steve Lillywhite will be my guest. Um, we recorded the episode a few days ago, as I'm sure. Well, maybe not, but maybe it's your experience, too, that you kind of curate your podcast and, you know, you, maybe you get a few episodes recorded ahead of time and then you decide, you know, like, OK, I, I need someone needs to go here and then, you know, et cetera. So um, Steve's the episode with Steve Lillywhite will probably be out in the next few weeks, maybe three weeks. He's a record producer. One, probably one of the most famous and influential record producers on the planet. He's won six wow. Grammys. He's worked with the Rolling Stones, with U2, with Talking Heads, with Simple Minds, with Dave Matthews Band, with Peter Gabriel. Uh, you know, the list just goes on and on and on. He's wow. just like, yeah, um, he's lightning in a bottle as an inner, as a guest on a podcast. Um, and uh hit that record button early exactly just (laughs) immediately um and and he was a blast you know he is a true artist in the sense that you know uh you know he just waltzes into a room you know and and boy just just commands um attention in a way and he's delightful and and uh we we had a really great talk and we, we we got sort of beyond um, you know, because he's the kind of guy at the level that he's at and having produced all of these legendary bands, you know, that he could tell you a story about how he was working on um, the U2 album, uh, whatever it was, Boy or whatever. And they were they were working on the song Sunday, Bloody Sunday. And he convinced the drummer to use a click track for that song. And he can tell these kinds of, you know, and Bono, Bono and the Edge have a vacation home together and they're dear friends. You know, he can tell those stories and it doesn't feel like he's name dropping. Uh, But then we also can get into things like, you know, deep sort of deeper level things. Like we talk about the fact that we're both in recovery, you know, Steve's in recovery and he's open about talking about it. So and I think in a lot of ways that 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 is what my podcast is all about is to have really open and honest conversations with people where we can talk about music and creativity, but then we can talk about other things like that. And, and Steve, yeah. So Steve's a really exciting one. Um, another one that's coming up soon. I have uh, next week, actually, I have uh, 
an artist, a singer, songwriter from Nashville named Ashley Sophia. She's she's just a beautiful person, beautiful songs. Um, I, I would I would recommend to anyone who's curious to go to to go to Apple uh, Music or, or Spotify or whatever and check out her song. That girl is a rainbow. Um, Ashley Sophia, that girl's rainbow. It's just a, it's just a wonderful sort of song that makes me smile. Um, so she's going to be on the show. And then I have another drumming drummer coming up, Denny Fungheiser, who's a who's a pretty legendary uh, session drummer. He D Denny is the kind of drummer that you I guarantee you you've heard uh, on some of the biggest hit records. Um, you wouldn't necessarily know his name, uh, but, you know, he played, for example, he played song, uh, played drums on the song. We got a fast car by uh, Tracy Chapman. Big hit in the 80s. Um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, he's played for a million other bands. Was that the 80s? Oh, yeah. And then she did one in the early 90s that was a huge hit. Um, Give me one reason to stay here. Yeah, that's, that's and, and Denny played drums on that tune, too. Oh, yeah. oh. Um, He's toured with heart. You know, he's just one of those guys. And I'm a drummer, so I get to kind of geek out with him a little bit on that <laughs> on that one. Uh, yeah. So it's very exciting. A lot of great guests coming up. And I'm, I'm, I'm just I love doing it. I'm, I'm sure you share the same sentiment. You know, it's it's a it's a passion project. It's, you know, to do a podcast. And to have good conversations with people. It's nice to connect with other creatives as well. And yes. um, also just to talk about like what was going on during COVID. Because yes. um, I truly believe that um, the contribution from the creative community was um, like it was like there are a lot of like the word essential is being thrown around a lot. Mm-hmm. And creatives just didn't get their credit for jumping in so quickly um, to just offer that distraction and support to the world. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, it's just interesting to find out how resilient um, musicians, artists, singers, um, actors were during that time so that's the part i'm finding really interesting about talking to so many different people is to find out what they were doing during that time mm -hmm. and um how they're coming out the other end and it seems like everybody's got projects on the go the the, the wheels were turning the balls are moving everything's everything's all good and uh lots of really interesting projects coming out of the last wow. year and a half and lots of pivots too. I find that there's a lot of different pivots coming from creative yes. energy, creative flow. Yeah, I agree. Um, and, and I mean, I have to say too, um, I, I, I appreciate what you just said about, about what creatives were doing during the pandemic, but, in, but also at the same time, it was essential for us to do it too. You know, it, like, for example, I, when the pandem pandemic started, as I've described, there was a lot of, kind of bad news coming you know with my daughter being diagnosed with cancer and then the pandemic and the isolation that came with it but then i started doing session work you know and uh do, you know and and that kind of kept me sane kept me creative kept me active during the pandemic you know working on doc on, on low faber's new record uh, and and some other projects that i was doing just drum sets to be able to go into my studio and sit down and and you know, hear the song I'm going to play drums on and, and take some time to get the right drum sound and, and the right approach to the part made me feel uh, productive and creative and useful and all sorts of things. So it was great. It's great for any creative person 
uh, and we all lived through the pandemic that way, you know, kept us at least a little bit sane too. True. And, so it's good for me to, you know, go on and paint live as it was for the people who were showing up to, at one point I had like over 400 people watching and painting along. Well, not, I don't know if they were painting along, but they were watching. Um, yeah. But yeah, it was interesting. One of my, one of my videos has over a thousand uh, views. A little paint That's great. tutorial. Yeah. So it was something that, you know, was like I needed to do, but I was putting it out there too. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't just keeping it to myself. But I noticed yes. so many creatives doing that. Yes, for Staying sure. It away for free a lot of the time too. Um, but yeah, that's, that's been interesting to find out what everybody was doing with, uh, that creative bit during isolation. Yeah, I know. And I've talked to a bunch of people on my show who, who it, sometimes it doesn't make the podcast. Cause you know, as you know, you make editorial decisions about what, what's going to stay in, but you know, most of them talked about the initial feeling of, of disorientation. And in some cases they were like on planes on their way to start a tour and they get a call and it's like, nope, it's over. Go home. You know, the world is shutting down right now. And you know, what, what do you do next? What, what's going to happen? Um, if you're, if you're a touring musician who, who like plays in front of big crowds and sells tickets for a living, you know, it's not like it's, let's say you're working in an office and the pandemic hits and they're like, okay, we just need you to work remotely. You need your laptop do to do, you know, what do you do if you're a musician who tours full time and, that's your mm -hmm. livelihood and you have children and, and on yeah. and on and on. I've bought concert tickets and had the money returned twice now. <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. I'm uh, yeah. But I have to say, you know, we started our tour. Um, we had our CD release sort of event on June 18th for this album, Claiborne Avenue. And, and, and that was the day um, or right around the day that governor Cuomo lifted basically all restrictions. Yeah. He was so, yeah, so it was kind of like great timing because there was this unbelievable burst of, of just joy and, and enthusiasm and excitement about from, from people who love live music to show up at shows and, and certainly the same level of joy for the musicians making the music to be on stage again, you know? And so it's been a great tour, summer, summer tour so far. We're, uh, we're heading down to North Carolina in a couple of weeks and I'm really excited about that to get down to the Outer Banks in the middle of August uh put my feet in the ocean and and do a couple nights of music down there so sounds perfect it's great i love it <laughs> well it was really really great meeting you and Likewise. having uh this conversation uh i think i learned a lot um and um i would love to have you back on again sometime um i have a number of questions but i know we are uh well over an hour and a half already um, but yeah, I just, I really like this conversation and, um, I do have, um, something that's in my mind right now. I, I would love to pick your brain about what New York was like during COVID <laughs> oh. because I can only imagine. I, I mean, we were over here watching and then you guys had that whole election going on and like, so I know part, that's, that's like part two yeah times a million Maybe if we're gonna start <laughs> if we're gonna start talking about the uh yeah the election, we'll um, have to do it another day but i would love to pick your brain about that 
Absolutely. If we're going to, I mean, I'll just tell you in advance, I'll warn you in advance. If we're going to start talking about the American election, just, just have these, the bleep button yeah. at the sensors at the ready, because we'll, we'll I just could... do an episode where we can see how many um, swear words we can fit in one episode. <laughs> okay. Well, all right. That sounds fa- Okay. Let me tell you, it's been wonderful meeting both of you. And I, I, I I've enjoyed this conversation immensely. And that's to me, that's kind of what what this is all about and um i would be delighted to come back and um and be on the show again i don't know it's uh, do you show any video content of the podcast oh that's too bad because for a few minutes there i was bathed yeah in this sort yeah of i heaven- saw that <laughs> do you want the I, screenshot I, I no no <laughs> uh but just for for listeners i was bathed in a really quite a heavenly glow from as the sun was moving across my window here and um Felt, I, I felt very statuesque all of a sudden. Um, you looked it. Actually, felt. Thank you so much. I, I think I just got my vitamin D for the day. I'm feeling <laughs> rejuvenated, and uh, yeah. So uh, yeah, it's been great. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. It's been such a great conversation. Thank you so much for your time. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Wonderful meeting you. Likewise. Okay. Have a great night. All right. Ciao. Bye. Bye.